I was kind of faced with this idea of, okay, I'm going to need to re-release the book anyway. But if I take a 2019 book that basically came out six months before COVID and just put it out there again, it's going to be very dated and be missing a lot of the things because like you said, we have, I don't know that I would say slap, I would say punch. Like I think we've we've all gotten punched in the face in the last two years. People have faced different kinds of challenges through the COVID period, just depending on where they are. You know, I think being mindful of that is one thing, but then there's also like looking at if I was sleeping beauty and I went to sleep at Christmas 2019 and I woke, wake up today, what are the takeaways and what are the challenges that we're facing today specifically with our real estate practices and what kind of decisions do we need to make moving forward in this new normal? Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. What's the real power of leverage? People think real estate is all about leveraging capital. Money is important, but what about the decisions we make? The things we do and don't do determine our success as investors. Choices and actions create success. Before we get to the bank, We make choices guided by mindset and by the things we do and don't know. If we want to succeed as investors, we need to leverage knowledge. We need to increase what we know so our actions pay bigger dividends. Join host Terry Schauer and Jean-Philippe Claude for conversations with leading experts in the real estate field. From mortgages to mindset and from macroeconomics to local market trends, Grow your knowledge capital with us. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, where we seek advice to help us make better investing decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, Terry. How are you today? I'm great, Axel. How are you? Life is good, except the temperature outside, but you know, otherwise can't complain. There's certain things we can change in life. Temperature isn't, so we just got to deal with it. So today, it's a bit of a fun episode because you are the guest and we are here to talk about your book coming out. You are about to release the second edition of your wonderful Mindful Landlord book, and I look forward to hearing about it. Great. Your original book came out in 2019, and we're going to kind of dive into a little bit about what it's about, what it talks about, because it really comes from the gut for you. It's really personal. And then you decided to release a second edition post-COVID, which totally makes sense because our world has changed. So first of all, what was the original book about? So, I mean, the original book is exactly what the title says. It's called Mindful Landlord. And I guess it came out of uh, my frustration with some of what I observe in, I guess, the real estate education field. And I feel like, you know, we've had lots of conversations about this off camera, you and me, but there's often like this real ethos of more deals, more dollars, more doors, and that it's all kind of about bigger is better. That has a whole bunch of consequences. Like it Mm -hmm. has a consequence of maybe pushing people further and faster to create structures and get into stuff that maybe is beyond their comfort level. Or else if they don't choose to go that route, then maybe they end up feeling a bit ashamed or like lacking confidence because they choose to do smaller investments or, you know, not quit their J-O-B the first day that they want to go into real estate. So that's kind of like one aspect. The other aspect is the fact that when we start to succeed in real estate, I think there's also this tendency to just want more and more and more without understanding what is the more for. And that there's this kind of like, you know, aspects where like mindfulness comes in at the beginning of your journey when you have to optimize your mindset and like conquer a lot of those mental barriers that people have. Uh And then once you start to succeed, 
then it's to not get trapped up in a cycle of greed or over leveraging yourself in order to basically meet someone else's objectives. Because yeah. ultimately, like your real estate practice, just like anything else that you practice has to reflect what you want to do with it. And mm -hmm. if you're taking in all of the stimulus of the, what the world tells you you should do and acting according to that, that's not the path to happiness. No, so. definitely. And you're absolutely right. We all know example of people who, as you said, like fall into it of like more and more and more. And they forget that tenants are our clients. And they are really important. I know over time I've developed relationship with some of them and sometimes it's good and sometimes a bit less so, but that's not the point. You also come from a background where you've started kind of doing some property management as a university student, because just essentially no one would do the dishes. And I'd love to start again at that point so people can really understand your background and how you got to do this and why it's so important for you to be mindful about it and caring Yeah, well, I mean, I started landlording as a university student because I lived in a student house that had no management. And so basically I stepped in and took that role and had uh, like kind of a crash course in it. You know, there wasn't as an investor. There was no like real things on the line. It was just about my own quality of life and not wanting to live in a mess. You know, one thing kind of led to another. And then a few years later, I started investing. But it was always with that hat of the property manager of me wanting to just, I like things that function properly, you know, and like, it's probably my, like my Germanic background, right? Like, <laughs> I like things to be like clean and orderly. But at the same time, like, I'm also not afraid of things that are a mess. Right. And like, I think that ended up, you know, turning into a business model where a lot of my units are in lower income areas. And that part of what I ended up doing was just putting those properties under better management, be it changing the business model, cleaning things up, dealing with some of the like the tenant issues that there are, and then turning that into something that turns a profit. Yeah. Given from your background, it, it's easy to see like why it's important to you. And as you said, like being organized and putting in structure is actually like a big part of the solution. And I know how organized you are having worked with you a little bit now. And so what would be some of the major points that you describe in the book about, you know, when you step into a new building, like what would be some of the first three things you do? You know, what I try to do with more of like the practical sections, because just to be clear, like there is really the book is like half mindset and half practical how to. And in the how to's, what I'm trying to do is really like give people an idea of how to start things from the ground up. And that's all the way from like conceptually setting yourself up to just a checklist of things you do when you're setting up a maintenance plan. For example, like one place where I see a lot of people kind of drop the ball is they go through the process of having their building inspection. They get this beautiful report. It's very expensive. It costs like, you know, $600 to $1,500 to get like your building inspection. And then the thing goes in the closet and gathers dust. They don't read or like, it. Or they read it to negotiate and then forget about it. Yeah. But so it's basically, no, you need to take that document, transform it into an Excel sheet with different dates over time. And that allows you to plan your maintenance schedule in terms of budget and also in terms of like reminders of when you need to execute, like which kind of interventions. There's like a very nuts and bolts component to it. Mm -hmm. But there's also, you know, in terms of conceptually setting things up right. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, I think a lot of us have this idea when we get into investing that we need to have passive income. You know, real estate is a passive investment vehicle. And we all know that. <laughs> passive, but, huh? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, but I mean, <laughs> passive-ish, right? Yeah. Like it's supposed to be an income generating system. And yet a lot of real estate education ends up conflating more active strategies like 
wholesaling, like flipping, like being a broker, you know, doing all of these kind of active strategies and being like, that is good income because it mm-hmm. comes from real estate, but it's still active income. Yeah, it's and a full so, on business at that point. It's a business. And so mm-hmm. if you're evaluating like your J-O-B, like a day job is not a four letter word, right? Like it's an active income generating strategy. And like, yes, building a passive income system is the tool to building wealth. But if you're going to do active strategies, be clear about what an active strategy is so that it's not like I need to throw my job in the garbage because it's not in the real estate field. Like, Mm -hmm. hang on, you know? No, that's a good point. Going back to the book, you released it in 2019. I mean, we all had a massive slap. I guess the world got slapped and a lot of things have changed. And so in the second edition, because I've had the luck to read the uh, the preface, you start by, you know, kind of sharing some moments of the first phase of COVID and the pandemic and kind of what you went through on a personal level and being a mother. And so I was hoping we can kind of restart with that of like, well, what's changed since then? <laughs> well, I do think it's actually like relevant of what happened. So why is there even a second edition? Like there's a second edition because my publisher went bust, right? And like when you're published, yeah, they, they were one of the businesses that was a casualty of COVID. Okay. So like the book publishing industry has, you know, been in trouble for a while, like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and certain publishers have better and worse made the transition into the digital era. And so basically, like they were one of the businesses that became a casualty of COVID. You know, I mean, that in itself is a comment, right? That like yeah. I ended up having to figure out how to take back the rights to the book, sort things out with Amazon, pull down the old version, get the new version. And then I was kind of faced with this idea of, okay, I'm going to need to re-release the book anyway. But if I take a 2019 book that basically came out six months before COVID and just put it out there again, it's going to be very dated and be missing a lot of the things because like you said, we have, I don't know that I would say slap, I would say punch. Like I think we've, just, we've all gotten punched in the face in the last two years. True. <laughs> like I think some of those shocks are, are temporary. Like obviously in the preface, I share like some of the, you know, challenges maybe that people have faced and, you know, me like as a woman with a young kid that ended up being a certain thing. But I think like a lot of people have faced different kinds of challenges through the COVID period, just depending on where they are. You know, I think being mindful of that is one thing. But then there's also like looking at if I was sleeping beauty and I went to sleep at Christmas 2019 and I woke wake up today, what are the takeaways and what are the challenges that we're facing today specifically with our real estate practices mm-hmm. and what kind of decisions do we need to make moving forward in this new normal? Exactly. And so talking about this, like what in your opinion and that you talk about in the book, what are some of those new challenges that we have yeah. now and that yeah. we'll probably have for a considerable amount of time. Yeah. So without giving away the whole punchline, I'll just pick my top three. Mm -hmm. So I think the first and and like super easy one is just in terms of like our practices as landlords and investors, technology now has such a huge incidence. And like, whereas before you kind of knew about Zoom, like now everyone can run a Zoom meeting you know, integrating and leveraging technology in our lives is super important. I think it also then ends up having social consequences because when we're hiring people or when we're dealing with the employment market, what was a real eye opener for me was when like I have a cleaning lady who lost her job because she doesn't know how to leverage her cell phone properly. You know, like if people aren't able to integrate the app ecosystem, it's going to become a real barrier. And I think like for those of us who work in this field, as we like deal with, you know, our concierges, our older tenants who like maybe have trouble paying with e-transfer like there's this real technological deficit that is again just exacerbating some of the inequalities that there are already out there and so if i had to then use that as a segue into the second issue it's that 
as I've gone through, you know, examining, let's say, the social footprint of some of the stuff that I'm doing. And I think through COVID, it's, you know, been brought more to all of our attention that the economic dislocations and the lockdowns and different things affect different parts of the population differently. And, you know, one of the things that's happened in real estate is like with this crazy asset bubble, now a lot of people are getting locked out of home ownership. Affordability is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, us as landlords and people who are trying to make money in the real estate field, some of our behaviors can have unintended consequences. And I think when we're looking at like basically our society is kind of like being pulled apart by a lot of these like social and economic tensions. I think it's really important like for us as like landlords and investors to just be really transparent with ourselves about like being the forefront of gentrification or like what does it mean when we say, OK, well, I'm optimizing a building. Like what does that mean when you say optimizing the building? Like it means raising the rents and that, that has social consequences. And I don't have any answers, but I mm -hmm. think just the fact that like we're transparent with ourselves about that, I think it's important. And I think it has a place in a book called Mindful Landlord, which is about partly also about our social footprint. And you're absolutely right. And going back to what we said earlier, it seems like some people sometimes forget that. And for us, it, it may be a way to create passive income, but it's where people live. Yeah. It's not just a fun little tool that doesn't impact anyone. It has exactly. big social consequences. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. And for the title of your book, to remember and to be mindful of that, yeah. to remember that what you see as an asset is someone's, it's not livelihood, but it's where they live. It's their home. It's their nest. It's where they used to get out of. And now they also have to work from there. So it's important with the quality, with the ability to provide quick fix and reparation and maintenance and so on and so forth. And I'm sure that's something that you're going to talk about as well. Like, even more responsive because now not only is it someone's house, it's also their workplace. Mm -hmm. No, well, it's, I mean, professionalism, right? And I think if I were to say like, you know, in, in if how could I encapsulate in one word what I, but you know, my more practical advice is really to try to inspire people to just bring a level of professionalism into what they're doing in the real estate field. And it doesn't mean, you know, we're not social workers, right? No. And like as an investor, I, you don't receive training in that. And, and that's not what I'm suggesting. I don't necessarily think that's our role. But the more you force yourself to behave in a way that's professional and to just like raise that standard, the more kind of respectful the practices become anyway, because you can't not react to maintenance calls for X number of time. You can't talk to people however you want. Like there's a minimum standard there that you need to maintain in your client relations with the tenants. I'm a big people person. And I still, when I say enjoy, like it's important for me to meet all of my tenants and to have a little bit of a, a rapport. And it's something that obviously before was much easier. And now it's like, you know, to sign the lease, you do everything electronically. We've had virtual visits. Then we had a meeting on Zoom. And then you realize like you've actually left the keys in the mailbox. People move in. You've never actually met the person face to face. And, you know, it has goods and bads. And you're right. Like we've all now been pushed so much in the last two years to leverage technology. But let's not forget that human aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if I can just uh, kind of back up a little bit and add one thing that, you know, I, I mentioned that there are like really three yeah. things that I want to talk about in the preface. There's more, but like those are the, kind of my top three. The last one is reading the economic tea leaves, because I think if we are transparent with ourselves also of like what's happened in markets in terms of, like I said, asset bubbles, right? There is economic fundamentals of specific markets. So like if we look at the economic fundamentals of like investment real estate, you need to look at the rent data, you need to look at net migration, you need to look at all of these economic data, and then somehow put that in relationship with GRMs and multiples of revenue and the profitability of individual assets. 
I think I'm also like trying to issue a bit of like a call to arms or a word of caution to say, yeah, we want to make money as investors. We want to make smart investments, but at the same time, like be aware of the larger economic context in which we're doing things. And I think we're certainly about to start facing a phase of challenge now. And I think being able to understand what some of those variables are that impact the market, because I think a lot of people who especially get very stuck in like the local context, they don't necessarily understand that there's this big macro picture behind. And when we're buying buildings at, you know, 25 times multiples in Montreal with the hope that it's going to go to 30 times multiples next year, watch it. Yeah. Watch yeah. it. Watch it. And yeah. as you said, there's so many external factors. And the issue with that too is that if people don't regulate themselves in a way and they'll say, yeah, but that's just the market, it keeps going higher and higher and higher. And then legislators or the city steps in and just says, well, we're going to control even more. And, you know, there's already rent control. And now the city of Montreal is talking about creating a registre for all the leases. Actually, where do you see this going? Yeah. Given, you know? No, I mean, Axel, it's a, like, it's a really great question. And I guess like for me for 2022, like I've set myself this goal that I want to understand some of this like social question a little bit more. And so I started reading. I happened on some like US study about some of the effective ways of dealing with the affordable housing issue. And it was like a cross-sectional study of like various initiatives. You know, it really makes me angry because I wish that like our politicians would read some of that stuff. Because I'll give you an example. When they're talking about what municipalities have done to act on the affordable housing issue. So one is zoning. Okay. And they had an example from BC where Vancouver has a huge affordability issue. And one of the things that the different municipalities did, so like Burnaby, New West Windsor, is they just authorized basement suites everywhere. And it's called a density initiative. Mm -hmm. And so basically the cost of the taxpayer is zero. All that the city has to do is begin authorizing creation of additional units in Mm -hmm. their urban planning section. And then boom, all of a sudden you're acting by upping supply in a way that's a win-win-win. So it's a win for the individual owner because they get an additional revenue. It's a win for the tenants because there's another unit on the market, which if we have an oversupply of rental units, the prices will come down on their own. So you're acting Mm -hmm. on price in that way. I just find it unfortunate. And again, like, you know, this is a bigger discussion we don't have time for, but that like the way the government's, our government seems to be reacting to things is with these like top down repressive measures when there's really like a nice ground up win, win, win. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, I, I, you know, I've set myself this goal for 2022 is that I want to start like finding and talking about some of those win, win, win solutions, because it's not true that we as landlords win when our tenants lose. Like ultimately no, we never. have to find a way to make it a win-win-win game. And if mm-hmm. they're playing to win at everyone's expense and we're playing to win at everyone's expense, we're never on va jamais s'en sortir. And no. so the goal is to like try to find some kind of initiatives that break some of those log jams. And you know, maybe somebody at the city actually opens their eyes to some of these like longitudinal studies that the data is there. You just have to look for yeah. it. To me, that brings up two points. So you're absolutely right that there, it's such a contradiction between what the politicians want and what they actually do to achieve it. Oh, there's a lack of new dwellings and dwellings and stuff. Okay, well, can we just speed up the permit process as long as all the criteria are met? I mean, you try to do a new construction now, it takes a year to get a permit. Yeah. It's insane. Let's deploy these resources to create un registre des loyers, which is going to cost how much? And like the landlords are just going to find a way to, you know, somehow move their way around it. The regie already has this thing. And yeah. all it does is it envenomates the relationships that are already difficult, like between property owners and tenants. And as opposed to looking for win win solutions, it's like they're coming down with like more banging on people's heads. And it's just not how you take apart some of this like loggerheads at which we're at. 
it goes in two ways. Like, yeah, it's, it's true that there's, to me, a very, very small minority of landlords who don't act properly and ethically with increases in rent and stuff like that. But at the same time, we also have to be realistic and the city needs to understand that. Like we are now, I don't want to say a world metropolis. I mean, we're not Mumbai or Singapore for sure, but is it still reasonable to expect that there is, you know, $500 apartments downtown for people? I mean, we also have to be realistic and ask ourselves that question. And two is that we've been used to a market where there's so much demand that I was going to say we like landlords and owners sometimes have the bigger side of the stick. But what if things change in two to three years? Axel, things have already changed. And, you know, again, I don't want to give away the punchline of the preface, but one of the sections is kind of looking at the data in terms of vacancy rates, right? Vacancy rates across Canada right now, the big metropolises like Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal were in like the 4% territory. Mm-hmm. And like a balanced rental market is between two and 3%. We had a rental crisis before COVID when we were down to like a 1% vacancy rate, but like we're around 4% right now. I mean, there are enough vacant units in Montreal. The, it's an affordability issue. And so how do you address that in, in a market? And you can try to do it with a tool like rent control. And if you look at the efficiency and inefficiencies of a tool like rent control versus working on the supply side, you know, prices for things are set by supply and demand. And if you act on the supply end, it's different than trying to regulate a market and then creating inefficiencies and weird things where people have to manipulate to do cessation buy to keep the rent artificially low or Mm -hmm. manipulate the increase sheet to have something else happen. So... Yeah. And then to also touch the supply side, like add more dwellings, make it easier to build. By the way, I love those conversations because it really touches the economics of it and how it works at a more macro level. And sometimes we have the tendency to just look at, you know, one building or one transaction and stuff, but like look at a borough, a city, an entire country. And also then, you know, you can add migration, immigration on that. It gets fascinating. So in your new book, you also share some anecdotes during the pandemic. And I was hoping maybe we could have a little bit of a laugh or if it's funny, I don't know. Maybe you could share a little bit about it to poke people's interest to get the book. (laughs) Well, again, I don't want to, you know, give away the punchlines, but basically what I made an effort to do in the second edition is to just, when I'm making a point, like just try to tell a story that will allow people to kind of picture a certain thing. And I guess I'll I'll share just one little anecdote with you of our latest edition of the Tenant Darwin Awards. (laughs) We just had some of our tenants, they will remain in anonymous. <laughs> so over Christmas, they left out of the country for two weeks and left their kitchen window open. I don't know if the heat was on, but with my, in minus 30, it doesn't really matter whether the heat was on and the consequences were predictable. Turns out it was a third floor condo and the pipes popped and it flooded the entire building. We're now at a, a 80K insurance claim. Oh, my God. (laughs) But all this to say the tenants had tenants insurance because we require as a policy that they provide their tenants insurance letter. And so basically the cost of that is going to be deferred to their insurer and the co-property probably is not going to see a big increase in their premium. That's an, an you know an example of a, an anecdote that can illustrate the importance of just making sure you do your due diligence and how happy was I when I opened the tenant file and saw their proof of insurance and showed yeah. to my client, look, yeah. we're good. Yeah, we're covered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it goes back to the very beginning where it pays to be organized and to have yeah. a checklist. And mm-hmm. to set your structures up in a winning way from the beginning so that you're not scrambling afterwards and, you know, losing your peace of mind. Yeah. And also like COVID and you talk about it in your book has pushed us to get out of our comfort zone even more. What does that mean for you and what impact did it have on your activities? 
<laughs> well, Axel, we're here, you and me. <laughs> and uh, we were not podcasters two years ago. So I think we have like a good analogy from the uh, combat sports world, which is that you hurt one hand, well, then you can only fight with the other hand, right? And I think that COVID did exactly that is it took away half of the things that we were used to relying on and forced us to develop other methods and practice other things. And, you know, for some of us, that's meant becoming more comfortable with certain technologies. You know, for me personally, it's been the podcasts really, and getting more comfortable with doing business digitally. And that that's like been actually like super enriching, you know, and that like, one can complain. And God knows, like, I've been the first one to complain of all the all the COVID <laughs> problems. But you know, in the, the who moved my cheese paradigm, like ultimately, the more you adapt, be one of the you know, the cockroaches in the mass extinction event, be one of those creatures that survives. Afterwards, you're going to have so much more terrain to operate on because you were flexible enough to adapt to it. So. Yeah. And you said it, and it's crucial that being flexible and adapting quickly. And Charles Coté from uh, his podcast, A Drôle Mo Inspirant, has, has a very famous line where he says, like, whenever you're in a bad situation, just think of it of like, how am I going to turn this around to my advantage? And yeah. in a way that, as you said, like created opportunities. And you're right, like neither of us used to do this right now in podcasts and stuff. But for me, like I was facing withdrawal of talking to people yeah. and sharing stories. And you, it was the same thing. And we just took that to our advantage and created another opportunity and it gave the opportunity to your publisher to go bankrupt so you had to take your book out the second time exactly and get to you know create a product that's ultimately updated and i think a better version of the ideas that were there in the first book so on my side i've already pre-ordered two copies of your book they're ordered paid for and i really want them signed where can people find your book so it's super simple we have a landing page just mindfullandlord.com And you will see, actually, you can order the Kindle edition already on Amazon. There's a link on the page. Or if you would like to get a paperback copy that's signed, if you order your copy before March 15th, which is the launch date, I will personally sign your copy and you'll have a choice. Either you can come and pick it up at my office in person if you want to have a quick handshake and a quick chat, or else we'll mail them out to you basically in the first two weeks of March. Sounds good. I will choose the in-person option. Yeah, I'm not surprised. (laughs) And I'll I'll bring coffee. (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. Super. Well, Terry, thank you very much. Any last words of uh, wisdom you'd like to share about the book? No, Axel, thanks so much for interviewing me. You know, we always have guests on and I was saying off camera before, oh, it's like so relaxed. It's just the two of us today. And it's uh, fun to find myself in the uh, guest seat on my own show. So (laughs) there you go. Perfect. It was enjoyable. And for everyone listening, you've heard where you can uh, get the book. Go to Terry's website. You can pre-order. It will be released at the March 15th, you said. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, perfect. So we still have a little bit of time, but do it now because the list is piling up. So thank you very much, Terry. It's been a pleasure. And uh, just to remind everyone who's listening, we are going live every Wednesday, whether with JP, with Terry and I in, uh, interviewing a guest. So you can expect to see us here. And for everyone on the podcast, please share it, leave a comment, leave us a review. It's always appreciated as uh, it helps us uh, reach more people who can benefit from it. So thank you very much. And we will talk to you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. 
JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.